Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Mets fans? We are back here for episode number 32 of the Mets Sub Podcast. Of course, I'm one of your co-hosts, Draft Neck Mark. Mark Luino here with James Shiano. Jeter had no range. We normally talk about every single Mets series that's going on, but right now we're in between. We're in the All-Star break. Figured it'd be a great time to go over some of the All-Star break content. A little mid-season report. We got the home run derby with Pete Alonso. We got the All-Star game with Taiwan Walker. We got Alvarez and Brett Beatty in the Futures game. We got prospect reports. We got the MLB draft. There's a lot of exciting things to talk about. Maybe even a little trade deadline sprinkling in there because that's coming soon. So we have a lot of things that are not necessarily Mets baseball games to talk about, but still involve that New York Mets organization that we all watch and love and ride with every single day. So, James, happy to bring you back here. Oh, I didn't do the intro. Let's yeah, do the I was going to say, where's to... the introductions? Twice in a row. Yeah, twice in a row. You know what it is? It's like we played the Pirates. We didn't have any games. I'm a little off my game here. I'm wearing a hat because I don't have any gel. I left it at the <laughs> wedding this weekend. Here's the intro you guys are waiting for. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at MetsedUp. We're doing great stuff over there, as well as subscribe to the YouTube channel, Mets Up Podcast. And if you're listening to us, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating. Drop us a review. It really does help out. I've seen the ratings and reviews have been going up every single episode. So I guess when I'm doing this little call to action, it's working. Thank you guys. Do appreciate it. Now I can bring James in again for his intro. What's up, Mark? I'm chilling. It's been a really relaxing week with no games going on. Nothing really to watch every night. Watch, I mean, besides like the All Star game, but like, I don't know. At this point in our lives, like, who cares about the All Star game? Yeah, especially when Taiwan Walker was the only guy. Like, if Degrom was pitching, I think we all would be a lot more oh, hyped. Yeah, I was happy. Definitely, I was happy Taiwan was in it. But it doesn't draw the same reaction as when Jacob Degrom's on the mound to watch him pitch against some of the best players in the world. Definitely. Also, just the way the All-Star game is run. Not saying it's a bad thing because I want everyone who goes to the game to have their chance to shine, but after the third inning, like you're getting Omar Narvaez versus Andrew Kittredge, and then our guy Taiwan Walker against Mike Zunino. Like these aren't these aren't the uh, the types of at bats I remember when I was like a kid. And these aren't the types of at bats we get in the first couple of innings when Vlad Guerrero hits a home run off Corbin Burns. Like there's some there, there are the stars, and then there are just the guys who were at the All-Star game. And it's fine. I want them to get their shine. It was a particularly bad year for stars, I feel like, this year, like in the first half. Like, I mean, you can just even go like team by team. Like, Lindor didn't have a good first half for the Mets. Acuna got hurt, so that's another guy that you're missing. The guys on the Cubs, who you normally think of like Rizzo and Baez, weren't able to be there. There was a lot of dudes that were missing from these All-Star games that usually are, you know, big parts of it. It was a little underwhelming, to say the least. The game was... A game that I watched. It was nothing more than that. Is all of this a game that you watch? On the other hand, the Home Run Derby encapsulated me. What an evening of excitement, vigor. That was our guy, Pete Alonso, as we both predicted. Actually, did you predict it? No, I said Shohei. I said Shohei. I couldn't be more wrong, which is just advice for you guys. If you ever hear me make a prediction, just go the other way. <laughs> I thought that... um I thought that people were kind of shitting on on him a little too much for his performance. He did, I think, hit at least like six or seven home runs of at least 500 feet, which was the most of anyone in the competition. I was still impressed by what he did. I also, he's just the guy so tired. He's the hardest working man in professional baseball. It's unbelievable to just think about the things he does on a day-in, day-out basis, and you throw the home run derby on top of that. Facing Juan Soto, actively the most underrated player in baseball, the Childish Bambino, as that nickname has made its rounds again in the last couple of days since it was... uh, named on ESPN. Still a great, just a great show all around. Yeah, and Otani also had the, like, unfortunate thing of going up against Soto, who in, like, the overtime round went three for three on three pitches. Like, that's so hard to do in a home run derby like that, especially when you're gassed like Otani was. It just wasn't meant to be, but Pete stole the show, like Mm -hmm. you said. I was at the wedding, so I couldn't actually watch it live. I've watched it over now that, you know, it's all been said and done. But when you sent me the message, like, Pete won, oh my god, I was like, no friggin' way did he win it again. I just... 
the way that the home run derby works, like being the second hitter, being the guy with the higher seed is such an advantage. And for Pete, you know, on paper, it seemed like he was going to have to play behind all night, but Soto winning against Otani was huge because then Pete only had to beat Soto by one. Mm-hmm. He, he got some help there, but hey, Pete still did it. Pete still won, and he had a crazy comeback against Trey Mancini in that last round. I saw it was like 30 seconds left, and he was down 10. Uh, I don't think it was that much. Truthfully, watching it live, it didn't feel like there was even like a shtickle of competition for Pete the entire night. It didn't seem like there was a moment where he wasn't going to win, especially after Otani wasn't eliminated. And Pete also, it's funny that you mentioned like going second such an advantage. He talked about how much he wanted to go first and how happy he was to be going first in the opening round against Salvador Perez. He was like, I want to set the standard. I want to set the bar. I know I, I can hit more home runs than every guy on this on this field right now and he said I know I'm the best power hitter in baseball so he was actually very excited to go first but I agree with you if going second especially in the head-to-head round seems like a breeze and it turned out to be a breeze in the second round when he beat Soto because he had like a minute and a half left when it was all said and done and you guys just kind of chill save those home runs for the next at bat and I think this also is going to bring us into a little conversation that me and you had a little bit earlier this week because you talk about Pete wanting to go first, he thought that was an advantage. We also heard Rob Manfred go at like a, a meeting. I don't know who it was with, with the baseball writers or whoever it was, talking about the extra inning rules and the runner on second and all this, which brought up a conversation with me and you about whether or not you want to be the road team in the extra inning rules the way it currently is in baseball. And me and you both agree that you want to be the team that hits first. And it's very similar to what happened in soccer recently, which... We're getting real crazy here with this crossover. I'll start breaking. But when you're talking PKs, the team that goes first, I think, has a like better statistical chance to win the game than the team that goes second because you're almost always playing from behind in PKs. And that's what it feels like with extra innings. I know you were getting into some arguments you said with people about it. Dude, my argument went into the hours of this morning. It's been like a 37-hour argument at this point. It's so ridiculous to me that someone thinks that... And I, this, this person, you know him too. His name is Eric. Like He just loves to argue. And he's act always wrong about things i'm I, it was very difficult for me to find statistics of how much of advantage it is because on baseball reference fan graphs and baseball savant alike you can't um separate for innings and extra innings you can only separate four extra innings rather than one through nine so it's not like the greatest data set especially because i only was able to find data of like how many average runs the home team scores versus the road team and just the home team can only win by one so they're always going to have less runs you know what i mean than the road team so i just don't think that total runs is like the best measure of success in this but i'm pulling it up right now i wrote it on like the notes of an article i'm writing for pitcher list that's coming out on monday but i just like put it in because like i want to keep these stats for just in case i need them the road teams on average are scoring 2.6 runs per extra inning game and the home team's 1.9 it just seems to me so clear that if you're the road team and you have the first shot to literally bury a game, you have the advantage, especially based on the base, like the modern baseball tenement that if you are the home team, you're burning your closer in the ninth. So that means that the road team is going out there against not a closer the next inning. And the road team, presumably, we're assuming in most baseball games, will still have their closer when the home team comes to bat, no matter what happens in the top of the 10th or the 11th. I think it's clear as day that the uh, road team has advantage. I can't believe you brought that up. That's so weird. We haven't even talked about it since then. Yeah, no, I'm like totally about that. But you bring it up about Pete saying he wanted to hit first so that he could like basically set the tone. Yes. It's like the same thing with the extra innings, like which comes back to that conversation, which is why I thought of it. And yeah, Pete set the tone with the home run derby. And he did that with Salvador Perez in the first round. Pete went out there and hit 35 home runs. The first four, That's... the first four hitters: Mancini, Olson, Story, and who's oh Gallo, Gallo, the most disappointing player of the night. I bet on Joey Gallo just because I liked his odds. Oh my god! I could have told you that Joey Gallo got nothing because that dude's not a competitor. You should have told me that. Game. Why'd you tell me that? Well, here's the thing: because you know what, he did like the MLB, uh, MLB the Show tournament last year too. The guy just goes through the motions unless it's like actually matters. He's a very much go through the motions kind of guy from what I get the feel with. And home run derby for me, he didn't bring it. He didn't bring it at all. He didn't bring it at all. But those guys all put together like rounds in the mid-20s. And everyone was like, wow, this is pretty good because that's more than most home run derbies. And Pete walked out there and just walloped 35 home runs. He was hitting multiple like over 475 feet. Like if they actually gave those bonus, honestly, Pete would have had like 13 minutes to hit home runs. He would have cleared 100. It wasn't even fair. And Salvador Perez walked up in the next turn and hit like either 28 or 29. Which is unfortunate because that's a killer round. Literally, if they would have had the old school home run derby rules, the last four guys who went all would have moved on. And Mancini, Story, Olsen, and Gallo would have been eliminated with 
Salvi, Pete, Soto, and Otani moving on, which would have made for a much more eventful Final Four. But doesn't matter. Pete is the undisputed home run king. He is a literal legend of the home run derby. Third player of all time to win the event multiple times. Dave Joust is an absolute hero. The greatest so good. batting practice pitcher of all time. My goodness gracious, that was a s- s- sensational. He wasn't getting the sliders that uh, who who pitched to him the last time was this like his high cousin, school coach his or? cousin his his cousin yeah throwing sliders to him and he was going to right field he, was, he wasn't doing a lot of those this time no none Pete was just hitting every single one in the exact same spot like fifteen rows up in left field and it just showed what a guy like Pete Alonso could do if he was able to hit in course field on a regular basis hot take spin zone the home run derby and Pete having a good performance like that taking a hundred plus swings hitting home runs is going to make him have a hot second half usually people say. It's going to diminish your play. But even Juan Soto came out and said, he goes, I've been hitting more ground balls than ever. I see the home run derby as a chance to take a couple hundred swings and try to hit fly balls, which I thought was super interesting. Dude, 100%. I think it's probably like one of these narrative fallacies that every baseball fan holds dear. The home run derby can screw up your swing. Like, I'm sure it could. Like, if you really try to do it that much, like, you could develop a bad habit. I'm not saying it's not possible. I think we just kind of use it as a boogeyman when a guy has a bad second half. Like, Pete did have a bad second half after his home run derby win in 2019. But a big part of that was probably just because he was a player in his rookie year that the league was actively adjusting to. And while Pete did have a bad second half after that home run derby, the team had a magnificent second half. And Pete's bad second half was relative to how good his first half was, too. Like, he still finished the season with a 900-plus OPS. Like, yeah. it wasn't... 50 home it runs. not... Yeah, but it's not like he, you know, all of a sudden like fell off a cliff and couldn't hit anymore. Yeah, the big one was David Wright. I think that was back in 2008 or 2009 when he just hit like three home runs in the whole second half of that year. But David Wright did have those weird couple of years in the middle of his career where the power just went away. And people like to blame things like the home run derbies. It's why religion has been so proliferated in the modern world. People like looking at things and being like, that is, X is because of Y. Home- Need an answer. Yeah, just don't think of the home run derby as a boogeyman. Pete's going to be great. If he's not great, it's not because of the home run derby. No. And there was also another event this weekend in the MLB draft that kind of, I hated that it was during this weekend. I like when it's separate because it should be its own entity. Instead, they decide to do it during the Futures game, basically. They, MLB, we know how bad MLB is in marketing. They botched this weekend so bad in terms of like spacing out the draft, the Futures game, and the home run derby. The draft and the Futures game not only were going on while actual baseball was going on, but also during the Euro Cup final, which you mentioned before. Like, it was just kind of too, there was too much sports happening. And a draft on a Sunday night also just felt weird. Also during the NBA finals, I forgot that. So MLB is like, we want to highlight our young players, show off the future of our game during the two biggest events of probably the two most popular sports in the entire world at the same time. Which is so funny, too, because, like, this is the first year that they had, like, a real, like, draft room and getting people there. Like, they've always done it in, like, uh, Secaucus at MLB Network, but now they, like, they got a space in Colorado. They had a venue. It felt like the first real proper draft, and they did it during the Futures game. Like, what are we doing? Like, how could you do that at the same time? Barstool Big Cat had a great suggestion. I'm going to steal his take right now for what MLB should have done. They should have had all three of these things on Monday when there were no sports at all going on and all the the baseball games were halted. They should have had the Futures game at probably 1 o'clock, 12.30 local time in Colorado. An hour after the Futures game, they they should have started the draft. So they, all of the guys in like the first 15 picks could have had their shine. MLB Network could have had all of the coverage. And then as like the second half of the first round is going on, there's less notable players being drafted, less like hubbub going around. You start the home run derby and you interlude the home run derby in with draft picks. And also, I totally forgot about this with the home run derby. I was so excited that there was going to be a StatCast broadcast to go along with the regular ESPN broadcast. I thought it would be a pretty cool to mix it up, taste differently, to listen to launch angles, exit velocity, see the distances, and they were coming out. And ESPN just made two half StatCast broadcasts instead of two actual distinct broadcasts, just with a few more numbers and graphics on one of them. Because they moved Eduardo Perez onto the regular broadcast, and they stuck Mendoza on the StatCast broadcast, meaning that no, neither broadcast had any identity, and they were both just regular ESPN broadcasts, with the exception of Petriello, because he kills it every time. Yeah, no, uh, uh, Jessica Mendoza, I'll, I'll hold my tongue on that one. I think everyone knows my take with what I think of her as a commentator. But the draft, let's yeah, talk draft. about that because the Mets had a pretty good one. Mm-hmm. First round, we talked about it last episode, but let's talk about it again. If you didn't listen, we got Kamar Rocker, who is a generational type talent up until, you know, these last few months. Beginning of the year, he was a cons- consensus number one overall pick. It was either him or Jack Leiter. 
Both those guys were considered to be aces, the next pitchers in the making. You talk about some of the most hype pitching prospects of the recent years. You're going Strasburg, who's you know the, the best one of all time that you can think of. You got Walker Bueller, who'd been drafted recently. That was highly touted. Kamar Rocker and Jack Leiter both go up in that category. And we got lucky where Kamar Light. What were you going to say? I was going to say your boy Kyle Wright, Vanderbilt great. First yes, round pick. Vanderbilt great. Yeah. No, Vanderbilt's a friggin' factory, man, for just pros. But Kamar Rocker was that guy. And as the season went on, people started to find more and more, I don't want to say like holes in the player or holes in the cheese, you know, Swiss cheese, but people started to find more and more issues with him. And he got a little bit tired as the season went on. His velo had been all over the place, caused him to drop. I'm happy he dropped. I couldn't be more pleased. He fell into the Mets lap at number 10 because it's so, it feels very nearsighted to see like five starts of a guy and say, those could those are big problems as opposed to seeing the entire makeup of this guy's career and being like, well, he's like six foot seven or whatever he is. He throws 97, 98 miles an hour with a great slider curveball. Like he's an absolute beast. He's got incredible stuff. I couldn't be more happy that he fell this far. I couldn't believe that the Mets had the opportunity to get Kamar Rocker at 10. And I'm so glad we took him. Big shout out to everybody being a little bit too, you know, scared to take him and that they didn't want to pay him the money that he wanted. Definitely. One little tidbit about one of the teams who we thought was scared to take him. This was a draft rule I never knew. But Kamar- Me either. I found it out yesterday. Crazy. Crazy. Unbelievable. Really savvy. Kamar Rocker was drafted after high school. So that would have been 2019? 2018? I think 2018 or 17. One yeah, of those years. Whatever that was. By the Colorado Rockies. Either late first round, early second. Somewhere early in the draft still, but... People are very aware that the Rockies' pitching development is not really top of the line. I think you're probably getting much more out of a couple of years at Vanderbilt than you are getting from a couple of years in the Rockies' lower minors, especially a couple of years ago when player development even lagged a little bit behind where it is this day in the present right now. And when you're drafted by a team and you decide to go to college instead, you and your agent hold the right. Now, the agent is Scott Boris for Kamar Rocker, which I also learned, which makes sense why he got so much money. You and your agent hold the right to bar that team from drafting you a second time. And they did so with the Colorado Rockies on Sunday night, which I thought was an unbelievable tidbit, something I never knew happened. Unbelievable a little bit of information that I heard for the first time, just as you did, mm-hmm. and I've been getting into the draft a little bit more. I also think, what a, what a friggin' move by Scott Boris there to, mm-hmm. like, no Rockies, because he knew the Mets were going to get him. Yeah. Apparently, they had the Mets circled. This, they're like, this is where we want to go. We want to be on the New York Mets. The one team that scared them was the Kansas City Royals, who took a huge reach on a kid, Frank Mazzucato from Connecticut. I can't wrap my head around how they took him number seven overall, but I wish the kid the best. I hope he does great. We got Kamar Rocker. I'm happy. We had this conversation. I said it mentioned it last episode, but literally on the terrace like a couple months ago. I was like, I think the Mets might actually get Kamar Rocker. You're like, yeah, I think they actually might too. And it's kind of weird that we got to this point. But I was going to talk about this in our prospect report, but I think we're just talking about Rocker. So we should have a nice little Rocker segment right now. There are some legitimate concerns with him reaching his ceiling. And this ceiling is an ace. Like, I think Kamar's floor is a fine starting pitcher. Some guy who mixes in the rotation, eats a ton of innings, has a big frame, big body, and he does great for you. When you're picking from the 10th slot, just getting a rotation piece is a win. And we have chastised the Mets for the David Peterson scouting and selection a couple years ago, but it still is a win that this guy's made to the major leagues and already killed like 150 innings, whatever it's been. And he does have more stairs to climb. But the one issue with Kamar that a lot of scouts have called to concern is the shape of his fastball. Now, I've talked about this a lot on this podcast throughout this year, that you kind of want to see guys with a fastball that rides. And the fastball that rides means it has a lot of backspin, and it gives the illusion that it's going up as it reaches the batter. Really, all that that means is it's not dropping with uh, gravity as most other pitchers do, but the ball spins so much that it appears, it gives the illusion that it's rising up through the strike zone. Kumar doesn't really have that. Kumar's fastball has some arm side run, which means as a righty, his fastball will kind of like just cut ever so slightly in towards the right-handed batter. Like, do you see the same thing as me in the scouting report, right? Yeah, I have not heard as much about like the, the, the run being an issue, but more so about like they don't like the shape of his fastball, which you've been saying it doesn't rise that's the one thing and while watching Kamar Rocker as the season goes on even when he's pitching well his fastball is the pitch that gets hit 100% it's weird because it's not it's it's a good pitch like you throw like he does with that size it's a good pitch no matter what but there were good hitters at the college level like there's this guy Tyler Black who got drafted in like the compensatory round by the Milwaukee Brewers at a right state who caught my attention because he smoked a Kamar Rocker fastball early on in the season so it's hittable but 
I feel like if there's any place to come with a fastball that needs a little help, the New York Mets is a great spot. 100%. That's where I was going to go with this. Now, because a lot of people have talked about how long it's going to take Kamar Rocker to reach the Mets. And I saw our friend Joe DeMeo put his expected arrival in 2022. I think if you want to get the most out of Kamar Rocker, we as Mets fans need to be patient and allow that fastball to develop in a way that can make him legitimately one of the best pitchers in baseball because that is inside Kamar Rocker. That's possible. I think he has been a little bit worn down because he's thrown tons of innings over the last four years. End of high school, he won a college world series already at Vanderbilt. He threw some crazy long games. He crossed the 100 pitch threshold a lot before he turned 21, more than most kids do. And his velocity has taken a hit because of that late in season, especially this most recent one. He looked so mortal this college world series. It seemed like he was a completely different guy than back in 2019. I think it's fair too because you mentioned Vanderbilt. Like they go deep into the college world yeah. series every year. It's like the LeBron James effect in basketball where like he's played like an extra three or four seasons because of all the playoff games. Kamar Rockers pitched a little bit more because of all the postseason games with Vanderbilt in the college world series. And you talked about this with pitchers just in major league baseball that they're going to hit a wall at some point because they didn't get that full season. Mm-hmm. Kamar Rocker is going to be in that same boat. He didn't get the full season last year. So mm-hmm. he's pitching on a little bit of a weaker arm than he normally would have. Definitely. And we even saw Jack Lyther have a midseason swoon this year and it didn't affect his his draft prospects similar to Kamar. And it just it is very important that, like I said before, the Mets fans are patient because besides the slither, I'm assuming that the Mets go into his repertoire and basically redesign every single pitch. The, the curveball is good. The slider and curveball are two like yeah. good pitches. Like The slider is, I think, the best pitch that he has. That's what slider is incredible. It's like yeah, mind-numbing. This, it, nobody touches it. Nobody hits it. And the curveball is really, really good too. Changeup only works because it's his fourth pitch, it's his worst one, and you still have to be weary of 97, you know, 96, wherever he's coming at you with. But they're definitely going to do some retooling with him. The mechanics, which is really nice to hear, aren't really a problem because you can get a big guy like this. He's six foot five, two forty five. You get worried about the mechanics. Pretty clean mechanics, not much to you know tinker with there. But we we have a guy that has such good guts. Again, like top five talent, arguably in this draft class, mm-hmm. arguably one of the top college pitchers in in the nation. There's so little that you really have to fix. It just feels like people saw bigger holes than might have really been there, you know? Because it's like when you see, was it like the, the the veil was taken off of Kamar Rocker because he started to get hit a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I feel like people were trying to find problems when in reality they're ignoring all the stuff that's right in front of their face and being like, this dude, you don't find this often. Like he's getting like the best MLB comparison that I've seen relatively because it's hard for a lot of players Noah Syndergaard with the kind of stuff that he had, like throws hard, hard slider, all that kind of stuff. And the Syndergaard comparison is actually good because Syndergaard has had trouble creating ride with his fastball as well. And we've already seen that Syndergaard can be very good, but without the fastball with elite ride, with that perceived rising action, you kind of limit your ceiling. We saw that with Wheeler while he was on the Mets. You see that with guys like, I wrote in their notes, like Joe Musgrove, Framber Valdez, our guy Tyler McGill, who... And another guy, Alec Manoa, who just recently made his debut, who has a similar like frame to Kamar Rocker. I think he's a tiny bit smaller, but he's like a thick boy. But these are all guys who have succeeded with multiple secondary offerings that they can rely on, especially Noah Syndergaard. We've seen his cutter, we've seen a slider, we've seen a curveball. Like, there's a couple different types of pitchers that Kamar Rocker can become, and I think it's going to be fascinating to see where the Mets decide to go with his development, because it might not be linear. I'm sure step one with Kamar is going to be, let's get this four-seam fastball going, let's get your active spin up, and let's, let's make this ball rise. That might not work exactly well. His first couple starts, wherever he lands in the minor leagues, I don't even know. I kind of want to talk about that too, because he is older and much more experienced than most guys who are being drafted, but there's going to be some retooling happening here. So if you see some bad starts, if it comes over Twitter that Kamar Rocker walked four guys or gave up three home runs in a game, you have to have patience. You have to realize that there's going to be a lot of adjustments made with this guy, because this is like an unbelievable piece of clay we have. Top of the line clay. Like you're hitting that pottery wheel and you're going to get like such a magnificent bowl as long as you just take your time smooth the edges, use a little bit of silt, like get your hands nice and wet and make something nice and beautiful out of Kamar. Yeah, so if you want to talk about like where he could possibly start, there's a few ways. The Mets could get really aggressive. You could pull a Marlins and you could do start him in double A. Yeah, That's Mac- what they did with Max, Max Meyer, Meyer and it's worked out beautifully. Mm-hmm. Max Meyer is tearing up double A to the point where this if this was a Marlins team that's competitive, I would think Max Meyer has a shot to get called up this year to be a guy out of the bullpen at least. The Angels did the same with Reed Detmars and it's going crazy. 
And these are both college guys that threw big innings for their teams. Reed Detmers from Louisville, who was considered to be the less, like best or second best left-handed pitching prospect in the draft last year behind Asa Lacey, who was the other guy I was going to bring up. The Royals put him in high A this year. He's another one of these like really big dudes like Kamar Rocker yeah. who like started started low. You were talking about like look at the performances that Kamar is going to have. Lacey not having great performances, but you still see the guts are there because he's still striking out like 15 batters per nine innings mm-hmm. because he has that kind of stuff. Kamar's going to be a similar thing. Emerson Hancock, the guy you want to talk about, high A as well with the Mariners. Mm-hmm. Now, they just have an absolutely loaded farm system, so it's a little bit different probably with them. Mm-hmm. But I would think that he's got to start in what? Brooklyn's our high A, right? I would probably assume that. I think maybe St. Lucie, just because that's where the Mets have their training academy. So I think that it would just be logical to give him like a month down there. And then if he dominates or he at least shows the signs in the offseason, you put him right to double A next year. And if he is, does still need like a little bit more seasoning, then you send him to Brooklyn. Yeah. I just think that there's going to be more work done with Kamar Rocker in the lab than on the field at first. And there's probably a lot of baseball fans that that sounds kind of weird for, but this is the way the game is going. This is the way player development works now. And I think that Kamar will stand to benefit a lot from the type of like high level informational training that the Mets are going to give him. You got to remember that we don't want Kamar Rocker to be where he's at right now. Where he's at right now, he'd be a very serviceable oh. like, starter at some point in his career. Kamar could be a high leverage reliever tomorrow for the team. Yes, but we want him to be that next ace, next guy to come up with Matt Allen and JT Ginn, who we're going to talk about in a little bit here. We want those to be the next three-headed monsters that the Mets got in the pitching rotation, so we got to we gotta treat Kamar right. We don't want to rush him up. There's no reason for it right now. He's not needed just yet, which leads us, I think, now into where does he go in the ranking for our farm system? Because... Mm-hmm. We got Alvarez, Mauricio, Allen, Beatty, PCA, top five. Mm -hmm. Where do you think Kamar drops in your eyes? I I have an idea where I'm going to put him. I'm interested to see where you go. For me, I'm ranking Kamar as our number three overall prospect and our number one overall pitcher, just ahead of Matthew Allen because I want to see how he responds to the Tommy John surgery and ahead of JT Ginn because he's really only just starting to come into his own. And these rankings are always going to be fluid. These could be completely different at the end of just this season. But I think the combination of ceiling and floor on Beatty and Alvarez, and that just comes from being position players, especially Beatty, because I think those are the two who are going to be contested. Those are the two who are right there next to each other. Beatty, no matter what, seems like he's just going to be a very competent major league hitter who plays an adequate third base. And eventually, when now the DH is probably going to exist next season, like he will have a major league role very soon. And you can't really shake that. And his ceiling will be like a 35-ish home run power threat with an average that doesn't kill you. That alone right there, just that ceiling combined with floor, just will put him ahead of a pitcher who I think still has a very wide range of outcomes. Yeah, it really depends. I think you're probably going to see it all over the place. I think MLB Pipeline is going to put him too. Mm-hmm. I think that they're going to just they they love to hype up prospects, mm-hmm. like especially draft guys in the top ten. They f- flooded the top twenty five last year with top ten guys last year, and I think that this draft class has some better arms sometimes. So I think Kamara probably go to two, and then Beatty three, Allen four. Mm-hmm. I mean that's that's a pretty good top four right there though. We're feeling good right now. The Mets top like six or seven in just about eighteen months has gone from something that we were like uh to one of the like the probably more coveted systems in all of baseball. It's interesting how Khalil Lee came over like from that Royals trade and went like right into number seven to begin with. And this guy's probably going to be like outside the top 10 yeah. as the season goes on, just because like we have had so many risers and so many like additions and guys that we got more out of, which mm-hmm. is always a great thing because we're so used to Mets prospects kind of just, just kind of shit in the bed a little bit. We're a little bit different now. Desmond Lindsay. Oh, dude, don't even come on, please. Why you got to bring up Desmond Lindsay? You're gonna, we got to go uh, through. Eddie Coons, uh, another uh, big right-handed pitcher uh, that turned out to be nothing. That's correct. The list goes on and on. Yeah, but this is a new age in Mets world, and another reason why we don't have to rush Kamar Rocker like some other teams might be doing with their pitchers because we have money. We can go get pitchers. We'll buy a new yep. pitcher. We'll buy two new pitchers. doesn't matter. This isn't going to be a free agency preview because we have a whole second half of baseball to play, but these guys are prospects for a reason. Like They need to develop. They're not finished products besides like maybe Jack Lyther or probably in the major leagues next year. It's going to take a while. It should take a little bit of time. If it doesn't take a little bit of time, that means just he, that he's just so sensational that we can't hold him back any longer. That'd be a great thing. But just don't think about Kamar Rocker for like six months. All Mets fans. I know you're going to want to. He's very popular. It's going to be on Twitter a lot. Put him out of your head. Look how long it took for the Dodgers to call up Dustin May. 
mm-hmm. Tony Gonsolin, like a lot of those guys that Urias. are now like, yeah, Urias, they, they babied him forever. It took Urias three years in the major leagues to actually get near his potential that he's reaching this year. And he even like, is like that big, thick boy, like rocker and him and Dustin May, they need a completely new fastballs to reach their potential. And you saw like a glimpse of it. May you're seeing it to this entire season now with Urias. It takes a long time with pitchers. It takes so long with pitchers. Pitching prospects take a billion years to develop. Jacob deGrom is reaching a ceiling at 32 years old. Yeah. He was drafted 10 years ago. Max Scherzer is having his best season, arguably, at 35. Yeah. Adam Wainwright, he's 40. Best season of his career. Pitching doesn't make sense. All you got to know is that it takes time. Mm-hmm. It takes time. You got to let him marinate a little bit. And then some of the other draft guys that the Mets took, second and third round arms. It was a very arm-heavy draft. Mm-hmm. We went Calvin Ziegler and Dominic Hamill. Dominic Hamill out of Dallas Baptist University, DBU. And Calvin Ziegler is a Canadian fella mm-hmm. up north, right. uh, but he went to like some school in Florida, I think, for high school as a prep guy. Mm-hmm. I know you were really doing your research onto these guys. I looked through them quickly. Hamill reminds me a lot of like how Lucas Giolito, Robbie Ray throws, real short arm action kind of stuff. Calvin Ziegler is a small dude, you know, close to the ground, but he has got some thick legs and he uses them. Yeah, Calvin Ziegler has what we call a strong base. He is six feet tall, 18 years old, and 200 pounds. That is a beefy boy for his age. So there's probably not that much growth left on his frame. So he's probably maxing out his velocities at right now, but he does. He will sit the mid 90s and he can touch the high 90s. Both of these guys, Hamill and Ziegler, are analytical darlings. They're both high spin, high ride, high rise, four seam fastballers, which. The exact opposite we're talking about, Rocker, we got with these two. There's no telling exactly how high they're going to go. Like, the secondaries are a question mark for both of them. Hamill does have four pitches, but I read a scouting report on Fangraphs that his slider and curveball, while having a lot of spin, look like basically exactly the same. But because they have so many RPMs already, small adjustments will probably allow them to move differently, become separate. He's a guy who's, while only throwing 92, 94 miles an hour, can be projected as a mid-level starter. And Ziegler's a guy I'm really excited about. He doesn't have really a secondary that he can hang his hat on right now, but the fastball is explosive. Touching 97 as an 18-year-old, who has never, I don't, I don't know what the, what the high school baseball scene is like in Canada, but I'm assuming it's like not all the way like America. I don't know what the high, like I know that there's actually a lot of really good baseball players in Canada. Like the, I want to say like the club scene, like AAU baseball is actually very strong up there. I don't know about high school baseball. That yeah. I know nothing about. Basically, the fact that Ziegler only did have one year at like a real American baseball academy, and he already has this type of um, these type of physical traits, I think it's something Mets fans to be excited about. Both of these guys getting into the system at relatively young ages. There's going to be a lot of development to have there. Again, be patient, but I think that there's a good chance at least one of these guys hits. I think what's really interesting about Ziegler too is that when you usually get these smaller pitchers, you know, excluding Jack Leiter and like Bryce Jarvis and these kind of like different upper echelon guys when you start talking about second and third round picks there's these smaller pitchers you're usually not getting a guy who already sits in the mid to high 90s like that's not something you typically find you usually find a guy who's sitting 91 92 Mm -hmm. really good control four pitches Ziegler's a little bit of a different mold here he's a guy who throws hard doesn't really have the control necessarily doesn't necessarily have those second pitches but they like the guts of him like the guts of him and again he has the fastball that we covered one of the reasons that Jack Lyther boomed so much this draft season along with all of his crazy stats his skills his stuff his repertoire he has that fastball you don't have to do any development to that fastball and you can just focus on those secondaries if you're in a laboratory focusing on secondaries it'll probably come as long as you're a hard worker and you're with a legitimate organization Ziegler definitely seems like a hard worker and the Mets are definitely a good organization the same goes for Dominic Hamill I'm, I was very excited about both of these picks. I think especially because the Mets kind of had to shoot under slot because of how much money Kamar Rocker needed to be signed. These were two very high upside plays and allowed the Mets to really have what I think was one of the best pitching drafts in all of baseball. Yeah, I mean, the Mets did something really interesting this year with their draft is, of course, like you mentioned, they had to play a little bit. I don't want to say safer, but as you mentioned to me before the podcast, they went after guys who almost had down years, Mm. but had been somewhat, I don't want to say coveted before, but people were interested in them before. Christian Scott, reliever out of Florida, really strong arm, not the best year. Florida baseball in general kind of just had a shit year. They got a lot of college arms. They took this guy, Mike Vassell, who the story was, I think, like three or four years ago when he could have entered the draft out of high school, got some really bad info and was like, don't take it. You're going to get more after you go to Virginia. Went to Virginia, didn't really perform that well. But he's got some stuff, too. They drafted a lot of really big, strong dudes that are pitchers out of college that at the absolute worst looks like they can make an impact in the bullpen at some point, like in the near future. Definitely. And we have to give some credit to just the Mets gang department because the last handful of Mets drafts have been 
unbelievably good. We've had a lot of talent coming through the system pulled from the drafts. I'm sure we've cleaned house in between, but I would hope there's been some holdover because damn, have we made some good selections in the middle rounds of recent drafts. And I don't know, I think there's a lot to be excited about. Thinking about Christian Scott too, he was a, he's been a high leverage reliever in the SEC already. He throws mid to high 90s. He had an awful, not an awful year, but he really tailed off the second half. This just seems like a great buy low opportunity. The Mets bought low, it feels like, at every single pick almost. Yeah. Like, even Kamaru, you technically b- bought low because he dropped a 10, and this was supposed to be the number one overall pick. The Mets took guys with the upside mm-hmm. that we know that their pitching department can probably get out of them, but right now their performance didn't necessarily show it just yet. And that's what you, that's what we've been begging the Mets to do with just players in general, specifically you with Ryan Cordell last year. You're like, I'm just wishing the Mets would find some guys that do this one thing really, really well and try to change try to make them into what they want it to be. Stop taking like these old dudes that we know are on their last legs of their careers. Get the guys that do something well. Something. And it seems like they picked at every single spot a guy that had something that made sense. Definitely. This was a call to action that we've both been making all season. That the Mets are one of these organizations now who gets more out of guys rather than less. So you can take more risks. You can get more risky types of players. I just said the same thing twice, but I'm trying to really hammer home what I want to say. We're going to be able to elevate players for the future. So higher potential with higher risk is not necessarily a bad thing anymore with the Mets. No, it's it's going to be really interesting to see how these guys play out. I'm going to be keeping a close eye on them, of course, because I love to you know invest in cards and check out how the Mets farm system's doing. And if any of them start to do well, we will keep you posted. You know, we always do every midweek episode. We do our prospect report, so you know make sure you keep listening if you're interested to see what these Mets draft picks are going to be doing over the next few weeks. A Mets draft pick from last year, though, who kind of went under the radar, JT Ginn, JT Tangeray, as you like to say, which I think is a fantastic nickname. Me too. Coming off Tommy John surgery, he's looking really good. And I think this this is why the Mets played it safe a little bit last year with their picks. Pete Crow Armstrong was a good one, but then they like took some other guys for like the absolute minimum so that they could pay JT Ginn. Mm-hmm. And it looks like it's going to work out, work out so far. It really does. And if anyone out there invests in cards, if anyone out there is in deeper dynasty leagues, this is the time to get JT Ginn because the hype train has just started to roll and it's about to leave the station. He's coming off the best start of his professional career last week at St. Lucie. He threw six innings, struck out 10 batters, no walks, no earned, only four hits. And most importantly, out of the entire stat line, he topped out 96 miles an hour, the hardest ball he's thrown all year. This is a stud in the making. He lost a year of development due to Tommy John surgery. The Mets took a gigantic risk, and it already seems like it's going to pay massive, massive, massive dividends. He... He has it all going on. And I think this, to go back to the draft, weirdly builds into Gunnar Hogland from Ole Miss being drafted in the first round by the Blue Jays. He he got Tommy John to end the season, so he's going to miss an entire year as well, kind of similar to JT Ginn. Teams are not showing that they're as scared anymore about these arm injuries because we know this surgery is getting better and better every single time it's being done. You can find a, you can find a nice diamond in the rough here, and the Mets might have done it with JT Ginn. He was really, really good in college, but the injury scared everyone. Now that he's healthy, we're getting that same player that people were freaking out about just a few years ago. Yeah, definitely. And people do always say that the first thing that comes back after Tommy John surgery is your velocity because guys are just so geared up and they want to throw as hard as they can. And that has now basically all the way come back with Ginn. It's crazy that we're calling him Jin the whole season. His name is really Gin, but I do just love JT Tangeray. That really rolls off the tongue, as long as we can get that branding. I'd love, if we could be sponsored by Tangeray, wow. Yeah, Tangeray, hit us up. Someone's got to be working for an <laughs> alcohol company. Yeah, us and Snoop Dogg. But the thing that he had been lacking, and he I, we'd mentioned this on previous prospect reports, was control of his secondaries. He's a fastball slider guy. He's working on the changeup. I haven't heard that many reports of whether it be good or bad yet, but I'm assuming not because I haven't heard about it. Having these types of strikeouts with no walks in their game means that that slider is there. It's active. Even in, in low A, you're not going to strike out 10 guys with no walks with a 95, 96-mile-an-hour fastball. You're still professional hitters. Mo- Some guys can at least make contact with that pitch. If that slider is doing what it does, like this guy's floor just continues to go up and up and up and up, and once that changeup comes along, 96 coming in, sky's the limit. Doing really good. On the pitching side, I feel like that's kind of all we really got, though, from that the was, minors. Yeah, that was all I had. It's been the pitching. We don't have that many great, exciting pitchers down low right now. Which would explain also why we went so pitching heavy in this draft, trying to find somebody to it take all, over. It, it all makes sense. <laughs> because all the notes here, the rest of it's hitting. Like, Brett Beatty moved up to double A. He's uh-huh. still a beast. Monster. Vientos, blazing hot. I mean, we talked about them a little bit last episode. Those guys just continue to stay hot. And Vientos... Thank you for getting hot at the right time because I think you're on your way out. I think you're going to be a nice trade piece for us. Dude, I think so too. Vientos, he has had such a torrid month that he actually now has the highest WRC plus in the entire Eastern League 
of any player 21 or younger. Jumped That's ahead of Riley Green, Tiger super prospect. Yeah, Riley Green's a ball player. He's to be ahead of yeah, him. He's a beast. And Vientos right now is a higher WRC plus than him, which is that's the composite hitting metric. That's the best way to judge you against your peers. And fuck, is he crushing the ball? Awesome. Crushing it. Thank you for your service. I'll see you on the Chicago Cubs once we get Chris Bryant because I think that's <laughs> happening. Mauricio and Alvarez still in Brooklyn. Mauricio is cooled off quite a bit. Yeah, not hitting like he was at the beginning of the year. But he's still such a big, like, gangly dude. I'm sure it's just a little bit of growing pains here. He's going to be a slow developer, it seems like, if anything. Definitely. And I think that, well, you think it might be Vientos. I think Mauricio is the guy who has been handpicked to get moved. Just based on the simple fact of logic that he has not tried out any position besides shortstop this entire year. I figured if he was a big piece of the Mets' future plans after giving Francisco Lindor a 10-year contract, you're assuming it's not going to take Mauricio 10 years to develop. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> not that slow. No, you would probably either try him out at third or in the corner outfields. But given the fact that the Mets kind of have a glut now of these third base corner outfield types in the system, not really corner outfield because they're just going to start moving third base into the corner outfield like Brett Beatty and Vientos. Because now that they're playing together, Binghamton, the other guy has to play somewhere. Well, one guy's at third, and it just makes sense to play guys in the corners because the Mets are going to need some corner outfielders soon. Seems like. Mauricio, the Mets playing him as shortstop is like somewhat of an audition for other teams to be like, this guy can still play shortstop. He does still have the top 20 prospect ceiling. He can be like a guy who fills out, becomes like a Corey Seager type, thick boy with good lateral agility. But the results just really haven't been there for him. He's also like, despite not really playing that well of late, we know he started off the season hot because we were we were like, wow, there he is, finally. Mm-hmm. I feel like he's still got room to grow with that potential. Like his potential is pretty high right now. I think people yeah. are still super high on him. I don't think the Mets have to rush him out, though, when you have a guy like Vientos who, like, in all honesty, is probably not going to beat out Brett Beatty. I, I think it's going to be so tough for him to do that. Oh, it would, it would have to be Brett Beatty playing to his floor and Vientos playing somewhere near his ceiling to beat out Brett Beatty. Because even... As good as Vientos has been, the strikeouts are always going to be there with him. Even during this massive hot streak, he's still striking out 22% of the time. Massive improvement for the guy, but striking out 22% of the time just for a stretch in double A means that you're going to have 30% K rate to the majors. You could win like that. Players do that. It you're, you, you could be useful. But Bailey's a guy who makes way more contact. The hit, tool, the hit tool is far better than Vientos, even though still not elite. Mauricio still doesn't really have either. We've seen the exit velocities, and we've seen the power for the first time in his professional career. But he's just not able to do that with play discipline, with consistent contact. It's very weird package Mauricio has. And something that should really just means that he stays at Brooklyn's entire season. Yeah, and I, not that this should dictate any moves, but I feel like the Mets also don't have any shortstop outside of, like, no. Lindor and him. So, like, we got rid of Rosario and we got rid of Jimenez. Kind of need someone just in case. And it feels like Marie. I don't know, at least in my eyes, unless we're getting, I feel like, someone with, like, legit control, it's not going to be Mauricio. Like, I think the Cubs would happily take Vientos and somebody else for Chris Bryant at this point. But the idea with Mauricio, the fact that it's taking so long, it seems like it will continue to take long. You're not going to see him in the majors for at least three years as is. Ooh, uh, three years. I think that might be tough. I think, like, what are we, in 2021? I think you can see him at the tail end of 2023. Okay, so basically three years. Two. But that's also <laughs> if he plays well. So I, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. he's he's yeah, It's been two years running now. Mauricio has not been at or above league average in A-ball, between low A and high A, St. Lucie and Brooklyn. There's still a lot of development to go. He just can't seem to have play discipline and power at the same time. Like, they go separately. Both can exist for periods, and he can hit the shit out of the ball. Like, you see those videos on Twitter. The exit velocity readings are very positive for what he has, but putting it together is not doing it. It's not also doing anything for organizational depth at shortstop. Yeah. Like, he's not a good enough defender to, like, make way at the major league and just figure it out for a few weeks. There's nothing that he can lean on right now. He is a complete high-variance player. He he's can a physical be, specimen. Yeah, he, he kind of is, like, in the O'Neill Cruz mold, or O'Neill Cruz is an exaggerated man of this. And he also, O'Neill Cruz is walking 10% of the time this whole time. Ronnie Mauricio is allergic to walks. This guy's either going to be a superstar or it's just not going to happen. And at this point, where the Mets are as a team currently, I'm super chill with moving, like trading him if it means getting a legit piece. Yeah, which it very well could. And I think the Mets front office has shown that they're very competent recently. Mm-hmm. If they're going to move Mauricio, I'm sure it's not for a rental and like Chris Bryant or something like that. I'm sure it's going to be no, it's going to be a big piece. It'll be like a Berrios or a Catal Marte, a Gal- Buxton. Yeah, Buxton. No one's talking about Brian Buxton getting traded. I don't know why no one's talking about it. I just think there's probably no shot. <laughs> he's going he's gonna to be walking next year anyway. I'll just sign him, I guess. I think people also get a little scared about Buxton where he's just like, he's, he's got glass bones. He's part of that he group. He does have of glass just, bones. A ball touches him and he's hurt. 
it like most of his injuries like have been freak things he did have the hamstring early in the season which you hate those soft tissue injuries but there's just a lot of freak injuries like sometimes you just put yourself in position to get injured and brian buxton seems to do that time and time again it's like when aaron judge slides he just can't slide <laughs> can't slide aaron judge can't slide if aaron can't judge slide. slides he's off the next day you gotta be careful when aaron judge slides some other prospects that we'll talk on here before we go into our pittsburgh pirates preview alex ramirez your boy yeah doing so hot in no. fact he's doing pretty cold yeah he got really cold after he just got really hot so it's kind of been like three different 10 game stretches for Ramirez this year where he was really bad and he was like really good now he's really bad again hitting under 200 with a 50% K rate in his last 10 games not great it's gonna happen he's 18 years old he is younger than Jason Dominguez and everyone's like pissing their pants he finally got called up to low A Alex Ramirez is younger everybody he's young hell yeah Let's get on the Ramirez train. Yeah, and I'm starting to see him, like, sprinkle his way into some Mets top 10 prospect list. A couple people are MLB pipelines. See, people starting to give him some credit there. Just remember, I had him first, and it's going to be good. It's going to take a very long time. Really long yep. time. No, he's, he's a long way away. And Khalil mm-hmm. Lee, maybe a little closer than we thought. He's, he's stuck in that group of the 4A players that a lot mm-hmm. of guys are in right now where he tears up AAA and has seemingly actually no clue what to do at the major league level, as we saw in May. We know he's not that kind of player, but we also know he's not the player that we see in AAA. What are we going to get at Khalil Lee? I don't know. We do know he's a good glove, though. Do know his good glove, and he has prodigious power. The home run he hit on Tuesday night in Syracuse, my God, he walloped it. Wow. Crushed. You heard that thing in Ithaca. It's he's like got the Franchi Cordero syndrome a little bit, where it's like he does everything that you see in one in like a vacuum, and you go, "Holy shit!" Yeah. But then you see the overall player, and you're like, "Ah, there it is." He swings well, and misses fifty percent of the time. That's kind of been Mauricio too these last couple weeks. But God, you see Cordero's working out there at first base of the Red Sox. They're trying to find any possible way for him to get into a lineup, and he they're just, dying to get him up. But yeah, we're not. This isn't a Red Sox podcast. It's a Mets podcast. No, let's talk about the Mets. Let's talk about the Pirates preview. Yeah, we've talked this whole episode about the Mets minor leagues and Mets draft. We have a big second half coming up. We've gone 40 minutes about nonsense, basically. Let's talk about this team, because we are about to go the fuck off. We have to. We have to. And we always, I feel like recently, have been playing well in Pittsburgh, like the last few times that we've been there. I feel Who like doesn't? we smack them around because, well, they're the Pirates. Let's do that. Let's go in there and smack them around. We got our three best pitchers going. This is a sweep. We got we got a sweep here. There's. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say... If we don't sweep, that's a bad series. I, I agree with that, especially the fact that we've got to um, customize our rotation to have our three best dudes going one, two, three. Strowman's pitching Friday. Taiwan coming off the All-Star game. As long as he's good, which he should be after pitching one inning, he's going to pitch Saturday. And Jacob deGrom, they're giving him the full week off, or not 10 days off, Mr. Mister Diva over here. <laughs> but I think they're kind of moving deGrom back because he's going to line up to pitch like bigger games now that he's pitching this Sunday. He's going to pitch Friday night at City Field against Toronto. He's going to pitch at the middle game of our five-game series with the Atlanta Braves that spans Monday through Thursday towards the end of July. And then we're going to catch him for a Phillies game, a Friday night in Philadelphia if all the schedule lines up right. And then another uh, game against the Nationals afterwards. So it seems like the Mets pushed deGrom back a few days to give him the rest he deserves, of course, and also so we make sure we have him for some important divisional bouts coming up. Yeah, I mean, we don't want to look too far ahead because we kind of almost seemingly did that with the Pirates series, and what do you know, we split with them the first time around, but Mm -hmm. there's just absolutely no reason we shouldn't just shit down this team's throat. They're not very good. We're better than this team in every facet of the game. You got to win, and something that's going to help us hopefully win is J.D. Davis is coming back. Yeah, forgot about him. He's been tearing it up in the minors in his rehab game, so that's good to see. Yeah. I, he's a good hitter. He's a really good hitter. This team needs a right-handed bat, and I think they're going to want to get a load of JT Davis. J, why well, I said JT? I was thinking about JT Ginn, Tangare. Yeah. They want to get a load of what JD, JD can do before they really dive headfirst into trade negotiations. Which, uh, yeah, you think JD, just to get weird here, you think JD could be a part of a package if we're going to get a third baseman? I think probably. I think if not, this is kind of going to sound crazy, but I think JD is like low-key. If he has not a good second half and he proves he really can't play third, low-key a non-tender candidate in the offseason. Interesting. The Mets just are going to have, the Mets are beginning to have such a crowded roster of guys who do very similar things. Maybe JD can find his soul back in the outfield when we need him at some point, even though we know he's not very good there. He did not make the jump on defense that uh, that Dom has. But this team, at the end of the day, needs a right-handed power bat, and JD will provide that. I don't want to look too far ahead. JD, I want JD to play well. Yes, no, definitely. And I think he will. He's a good hitter. He's only ever mashed when he's been a part of this New York Mets team. Mm-hmm. So it'll be good to add him back into this lineup with Nimmo, with McNeil, with Alonzo, with Dom Smith, with Conforto, who hopefully wakes up in the second half. McCann, I forgot about Francisco Lindor. That guy exists. He's been hot. He's pretty good. OPS above 700 finally for the year, which is 
not good, but hey, it's a step forward in the right direction. He's been one of the better offensive shortstops in the league the last like month and a half. So top, top twenty WRC plus in baseball over his last forty games. Yep, and you saw the SNY article by John Harper. Did you see that? I saw you tweet it, but I don't. I don't want to give SNY's journalists any credence. Well, it'll be our bad Mets take since we haven't done that yeah. in a little bit here. He gave grades for like the big players on the Mets. Jacob deGrom obviously gets an A, mm-hmm. gave Francisco Lindor a D, which I think is extremely harsh, extremely harsh. And he gave Luis Rojas a B, which yeah. I also think oh, is harsh. B plus. I still think that's harsh. I, I think, think it's Rojas harsh deserves an A. And people were like, you think Rojas deserves an A? I'm like, hey, tell me, tell me why he wouldn't. You know what this team played with? It's very clear that you and I are probably Luis Rojas is two biggest fans, at least on Twitter, in the world at this point, which I just think that people need something, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, come a full circle. People need something to blame. People need a reason to say why this is happening, and he gets blamed with tons of losses that he shouldn't. I think Guy's done a fantastic job. Fantastic yeah. job with this team. He's a wonderful manager. I think he's growing into the role so beautifully. It seems like the guys love him. I like him. Management seems to like him a lot. He's great. I just want to say, Don Mattingly essentially managed with an exact same team last year, like with like for a month and a half, and he won the manager of the year, and the Marlins finished 500 and only made the playoffs because of the extended playoffs. Luis Rojas kept this team in first place for eight weeks with that roster. Come on now. Like, I don't understand the disrespect for him. And with Lindor, the D grade is just so bad. He's elite defensively still. And even though he's not giving you the traditional numbers that you want, and his OPS is still a little bit low, he's had a great month and a half. He's still getting on base. He's still making an impact on this team. D is a negative impact. An incredible impact. Francisco Lindor is top three in baseball savant's metric OAA on the infield. He's getting to everything. He's made a couple bad throws, or at least he did back in April and May. And my dad said he's not ready for New York, but... The guy is so good in the field. He's been he's been the steady contributor in this lineup all year. While he wasn't always hitting, he was always getting on base. He plays baseball the right way. He's gotten tons of clutch hits, which some Mets fans completely forgot all the clutch hits he's gotten, which is beyond me. It's really egregious to think about. But A, for, nah, not A, B. Francisco Lindor is a C. I said I'd give him a C just because we had higher expectations, but I felt like D was just like bad. Mean. And I also heard people, people were like... Uh, the the contract with that contract you expect I'm like he's technically not on it yet so you know that doesn't actually even matter still Slick. on the arbitration Slick. Maybe. let's nice. go good call <laughs> but anyway I think that's where we're gonna wrap up this episode here of the Mets Thub Podcast episode number thirty two thank you so much for listening guys do appreciate you if you're listening to us Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts Spotify drop us a five star rating if you enjoy it drop us a review it does help us out follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Mets Thub YouTube channel Mets Thub Podcast I'm your co-host, Draftneck Mark. Mark Luino here with James Shiano. Jeter had no range on Twitter. Follow us both there. I think that's where we're going to wrap it up. Guys, see you next time after this Pirate series. Hopefully a sweep. Peace out. Big second half coming. Thanks for listening.